Good morning. Well, praise the Lord for that wonderful singing. Amen. I appreciate the uh, music team and just their contributions each week. They get here early and they, they practice and I'm always edified by the songs they pick. So thank you, uh, brothers and sisters, for preparing that for us. Uh, I'd ask you to turn now to Acts chapter 9. We'll continue our worship in this uh, tremendously important section of this early account of the early church. We're going to read all the way to verse 19. We're going to do 1 through 19. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. This is God's word. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Our text for this morning has been called one of the most, if not the most important event that Luke records in the book of Acts. Some have identified this section, this singular moment, as the most significant event since the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. The moment when Saul's passion and zeal are divinely redirected from persecuting the church to propagating the gospel. And they're right. 
Uh, This moment in time not only changed the course of Paul's life and career, but it radically altered the destiny of the church. That's what we're going to spend our time considering this morning. An event so significant, so monumentous, that it not only redirected the trajectory of the church, but in fact reshaped world history. As this single conversion would go on to impact billions, literally billions of men and women throughout the history of the world in one way or another. Many of us here have been personally, deeply, and eternally impacted by God's transformation of this one man, this Saul of Tarsus, who would go on to become the great apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul, who is later known as Paul in Acts 13, who would uh, be involved in writing nearly half of the books in the New Testament, 13 out of 27 Letters as he was used mightily by God to communicate and record the very words of God which have the power to transform a human heart and an eternal soul. This was a monumentally significant conversion uh, which like any sincere or genuine transformation first came by way of humiliation. That's what we'll see this morning. Transformation through humiliation which resulted in propagation and multiplication. Multiplication which continues even to this day some 2,000 years later. So let's dive right in here and let's see how this all took place. Verse 1.1 in your outline. Luke says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Again, here we have the powerful Saul of Tarsus. Luke records the Greek name Saulos here, which will be important to know as we move along. But here we see this Saul of Tarsus, and here we see him for the third time in the book of Acts. This is not his debut in this book. Remember, we first saw him in chapter 7, at the stoning of Stephen. As Luke recorded, the witnesses were laying down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is that same Saul. This is the same Saul who, in chapter 8, verse 1, approved of Stephen's execution. This is the same Saul who, just a couple of verses later, was ravaging the church ravaging them over and over and over and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Needless to say, Saul of Tarsus hated the believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He hated them. He hated anyone who had the audacity to claim that there was some obscure carpenter's son from Nazareth in Galilee, that he was this long-awaited, highly anticipated, divinely promised Messiah and Savior of Israel. The carpenter's son? He hated these people. He despised them. He he loathed their very existence. And he felt that he was going to be the one to eradicate the stain and the stench of this cult And not only from Jerusalem, not only from the region of Judea, but from the very face of the earth. He felt he was the one that was sent by God, commissioned by the representatives of God to wipe these people off the earth, to once and for all rid the world of these Jesus followers, all the while satisfying his own lust for blood in the process. He had a bloodlust. But he was a very important man. 
No doubt a part of the Sanhedrin, the most powerful governing body in all of Israel, we are told that he approved of executions in his own words. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but then when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And we also know from his testimony that he was really something special in the eyes of those around him. He had all the clout. He had all the clout. Well, he was circumcised on the eighth date of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was actually named after the first king of Israel, King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yeah, he really had it going on. And he knew it. And as he looked around the chambers, he thought to himself, who better to take up this pious mantle than me? Uh, Who better to do the God of the heavens and the earth a monumental favor than rid rid him of these blasphemers once and for all than me? Who can do this? I'll take care of him for you. I'll do God this favor. So Luke says he goes to the high priest. This high priest was a Sadducee, by the way. Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't like each other. They weren't too fond of one another. But here they have a common cause, and it's the hatred of Jesus Christ and his followers. He went to the high priest, likely Caiaphas, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now this is a big deal, his wanting to go to Damascus. The past couple of weeks, we've seen the church spread north to Samaria and then down again to Ethiopia. They were scattered north because of persecution, right? Well, now we see this threat to Judaism had had spread even further north to Damascus in Syria. This is one of the oldest cities in the history of the world. He was going to go up there and he was going to straighten things out for him. He's going to go to all these synagogues and take care of these Jesus followers. And he had the authority to do so. We know from historical writings that a treaty had been established between Rome and Jerusalem at at that time, which actually extended the high priest's rights and authorities over Jewish communities throughout the whole Roman Empire, including the right of extradition. Not long after this account in Acts chapter 9 here, which most folks think to have taken place at 34 A.D., not long after this, there was an attack on the city of Damascus, which, Damascus, which is said to have been home to about 150,000 people. Now, 10 or 20,000 Jews in that, lost their lives in that attack. They were, they were murdered, which tells us that there were at least this many Jews in Damascus at the time of this writing, and this area would have certainly been a part of that treaty. And so here we have Saul of Tarsus, and he's fueled by contempt and by by rage and and animosity, saying, give me the papers, grant me the authority, I'll go up to Damascus and take care of this problem for you. Uh, Saul was haughty, he was arrogant, he was vengeful, he was ruthless. Again, we cannot overstate how much he hated these women and men. He hated these Christ followers. Can you think of anything in this world that you hate? That you absolutely loathe? That you have utter disdain for? I can. Child abusers? 
child rapists, pedophiles, I'd say they'd probably top my list. And some say, ooh, this is getting uncomfortable here. We're uh, God followers. We're, we're Christians. We're not supposed to talk about hate, right? Is that right? What do you think when God meant when he wrote this? Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Hate evil, love good, establish justice at the gate, Amos 5. Even Jesus said no servant can serve two masters, right? Either he will love the one and what? Hate the other. Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That was Jesus who said that. How about spousal abusers, oppressors, kidnappers? Like this Haitian gang who has kidnapped 17 American and Canadian missionaries, including five children aged uh, ages 15, 14, 6, 3, and 8 months. Demanding money in exchange for the lives of these children and their parents. How about a hatred of sinful, God-rejecting government officials? The fact that governmental restrictions and global regulations are in place which prevent us from sending a team of Navy, Navy SEALs down there to take care of this problem. Hatred of the corrupt world system. How about the fact that we live in a country where a large percentage of people, including a majority of our so-called leaders, find it acceptable and even admirable for a mother to decide to murder her own child in the womb? A place that was designed to be the safest place in all the world. I mean, they campaign on it. That's their platform. The satanic lie that taking a life of a child made in God's image is a good thing. Or even an honorable thing. Should we hate that? What about the sin within us? Our own sin. Just looking at myself, I hate my own sin. My own falling short, my inability, as Paul says, to understand what I do, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. No, we are to hate what is evil because God hates what is evil. Well, at this point in the history of, uh, in history, this Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Saul was not a hater of what was evil, but he was a hater of that which God called good. That's how this man felt about what Luke refers to in verse 2 as those belonging to the way. Notice not a way, Not one of many ways, but the way. The way to what? The way to God. The only way to God. Not many ways to God, not many ways to heaven, but one way. The way. And now we have these people going around Samaria and Damascus, even down to Ethiopia, saying that the way was not Judaism. The way was not the temple and the sacrificial system. The way was not abiding by the rules and customs of pharisaical and rabbinical law and tradition, but rather they're saying the only way to peace with our Creator is by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, this obscure carpenter's son from Nazareth. 
They're saying that the only way to peace with our Creator is by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of God's sacrificial Lamb, the very Son of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul hated them for it. He hated them for it. And the Pharisees hated them. And the Sadducees hated them the same way the Romans hated them. And all for their faith in Christ who said himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And that's been the pattern ever since, right? The the emperors hated them for their belief in justification by Jesus Christ alone. The Catholic Church and their popes and their priests hate those belong to the way uh, because of their doctrine of justification by grace alone, faith alone. Muslims hate us. Buddhists hate us. Hindus hate us. Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, hate us. The atheists hate us. The secular humanists hate believers in Christ. Tyrannical world leaders and dictators hate the Christian man. They hate the Christian woman. Believers are hated by the world because we're the only ones who are on the way that leads to salvation. We're the only ones who are on the way that leads to salvation by God and salvation from God. And the ultimate cause of this hatred for the people of God is not necessarily with us, but it stems with their hatred of God himself. They hate God. All the people we just referenced hate the one true God of the Bible. And that's where Saul of Tarsus was at this point, right in the middle of a works-based false religious system which day after day proved their hatred of God. But at this point here, verses 1 and 2, he didn't know he was a God-hater. Paul at this point didn't know that he was actually, as his mentor Gamaliel said back in Acts chapter 5, fighting against God. He didn't know that at this point because, well, he was arrogant and he was ignorant. He didn't know. But he's about to find out, isn't he? Look at verse 3, point 2 in your outline. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, it's very important to know this. There are two more descriptions of this conversion story uh, throughout the rest of the book of Acts here, which Paul himself expands upon the details of this conversion on the road to Damascus. Is Acts chapter 2, where he stands up in front of the temple addressing or on the steps of the temple addressing the masses, then in Acts chapter 26 where he stands before King Agrippa giving his defense for the false charges lobbied against him. Now again, this isn't long after Jesus was crucified at Calvary. This isn't long after many of the disciples and many others were testifying that Jesus was in fact raised from the dead. There were 500, as many as 500 witnesses to this. Word was spreading already. This was like uh, a year, within a year of those events, and so they were still fresh in everybody's mind. And, and here's this Saul. He was likely 35, 36 years old at this time, either 
walking into Damascus, which would have taken somewhere around two weeks from Jerusalem, or riding in on a horse, which would have taken about five days. But either way, he's coming into Damascus, and he's growing more and more enraged. And he's just thinking, oh, I can't wait till I get there. When Luke says, all of a sudden, a light from heaven shone all around him. Paul told King Agrippa, it was a light from heaven. It was brighter than the sun. It was flashing all around me on every side. And it caused him to fall to the ground. The proud man is now flat on his back. Reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by John Bunyan. He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low no pride. He that is humble shall ever have God to be his guide. It was in this moment that Saul of Tarsus was brought low. It was in this moment that the all-powerful, all-sovereign God, creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth kicked that chair of pride right out from under him and he fell right on his behind, right on his back. He was indeed brought low by the very God that he thought he was trying to defend. We'll talk about more on this divine humbling in a moment, but I don't want you to miss the importance of this voice in verse 4, which says this, Saul, Saul, not Saulos in the Greek, but now Shaul, Shaul in the Hebrew. He even says to Agrippa in chapter 26, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were these sharpened sticks that were used to herd cattle, or it was a stick with this metal point on the end, and you poke them and you keep them moving. Now, when an ox was po- poked with these goads, the response was to someday kick back against it in, in resistance here, which was not only futile, but it was really, really painful. And Matthew Henry says people can do the same thing spiritually. He says a, a person's kicking against the goads means to stifle and smother the convictions of their conscience. To rebel against God's truths and laws, quarrel with his providences and persecute and oppose his ministers because they reprove them. Their their words are as goads and as nails. This is what Christ said to Paul on the road to Damascus. Stop kicking against my providence. My purpose. There's nothing you can do to thwart it, and you're just going to get hurt in the meantime. Stop doing it. And look at Paul's reply in verse 5. He says, Who are you, Lord? Some people say this word for Lord here means sir. It's just an, a, a cordial greeting. Others believe it means owner, master, supreme one. Who are you, Lord? Immediately the voice answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In Acts chapter 2, Paul says the voice told him, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Now Paul was a Pharisee, right? Which means unlike the Sadducees, this voice would have meant more to him. Pharisees believed in the spiritual realm. They believed in angels and demons, rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Pharisees would say, oh yeah, we believe in that. Not the Sadducees, though. Maybe the biggest disagreement between the two groups was their belief in the resurrection. Sadducees said, no, no, no. This life is all there is. That's why they were so concerned with their worldly status, their, their position in the temple and in the Sanhedrin. Everything they did was run through the filter of, well, 
nothing left to lose. Life is all there is. Uh, But the Pharisees, uh, including this Pharisee, the young man Saul of Tarsus, held firmly to a belief in the afterlife and specifically to the resurrection of the dead. He also knew that such revelations, such hearing of audible voices like this one he was currently hearing, they could only come from heaven and could only come from God himself. So now he's hearing this voice from heaven, a voice from heaven which says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, which means two things. First, Jesus was alive. He was, in fact, raised from the dead. Second, he was now speaking to Saul in a vision from heaven, which solidified both the claims of his disciples and himself that Jesus of Nazareth was not only raised, but that he was, in fact, God in human flesh, the Son of God. He was truly and is truly the Son of God. He had to be to to reveal himself to Saul on this road. Uh, Paul's very own belief system would support this reality, which is why I'm convinced that when he said, Who are you, Lord? At this moment, he was saying, Who are you, Master? Who are you, Master? He was already displaying a reverential fear for what he knew was a vision from and of God. And look again at what was said. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now there's no indication anywhere in scripture that Paul had interactions with Jesus during his earthly ministry. I'm sure he saw him. I'm sure he knew of him. But I would actually even venture to say he was part of the mob that condemned the innocent son of God to death, but we don't know that for sure. Of course, it's not in the text. Yet Jesus here in this vision is saying, saying, you are persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? In the present tense, like actively, continually in the process of persecuting me. What's he talking about here? Or better yet, who is he talking about here? Who's he talking about? Answer, the church. The people of God. Those whom Paul himself will go on to refer to as the body of Christ. An attack on Christ's body is an attack on Christ himself. You attack the body, you attack the head. It was true then, it's true now. It's true for those Haitian gang members right now. It's true for all the persecutors of Christians throughout the history of the church. They will pay for what they have done to the body. And Christ himself will deliver the punishment. Think of these guys meeting the Lord on on Judgment Day. Standing before his great white throne. Why did you persecute these families with these young children? They were a part of my body. Kim Jong-un, why, why did you kill my disciples in North Korea? Why, are you per- why did you persecute me? We've got a, quite a few Indian families in the congregation. Hudson, if you can put that picture up. Think of the leaders of the Hindu nationalists in 2018 who put to death hundreds of Christians, sexually assaulted many women before burning them and their families to death. Think of those men standing before the Lord, and the Lord says, why did you persecute me? And then comes the judgment. Think of the man who put the torch to the face of this young girl. Why 
why did you persecute me? Such and such a leader, why have you persecuted my children in Myanmar, in China, in Russia, in Africa? Think of all the folks in our society who will have to give an account. Why did you call my people bigots? Why did you call them misogynists, simple-minded fundamentalists? Why? They're trying to preach the gospel to you. Why did you persecute me? Why did you not believe my children? Why did you call them liars? Why did you call me a liar when my spirit sent them and enabled them to share the gospel of grace with you? Every unbeliever will have to answer for their persecution of Christ through the persecution of his body. And Paul, really, by the grace of God, was being asked this question right here on the road to Damascus. He was shown mercy. He was shown mercy, though he was absolutely deserving of death and eternal torment. And he knew it, didn't he? He knew the mercy he was being shown. And this is good, even for those of us who are in the body to think about whenever we're tempted to slander or falsely accuse those in the body, our brothers and sisters, ultimately an attack on our fellow believers is an attack on Christ himself. He says it right here, I am Jesus whom you are actively persecuting. Not only did Paul hear this voice, but he also saw the resurrected Lord. How do we know this? Well, he was called to be an apostle. One of the requirements for apostles, and while nobody holds the office of apostle today, is that true apostles had to see and be commissioned by the resurrected Christ. And Saul here on the road to Damascus saw the resurrected Christ. Some people actually deny that he saw Christ. They said that he got struck by a lightning bolt, he was having hallucinations, maybe got some peyote on the way, I don't know. But Paul is clear, he saw Jesus. He, He would even go on to say to the church in Corinth, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the risen Lord, Jesus our Lord? He says, last of all, as to me, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Even here in our uh, chapter 9, verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. Paul saw the resurrected Lord. The important takeaway from this section is that Jesus was crucified. He was killed. As we saw last week, he was unjustly murdered at the hands of lawless men. But now Jesus is alive. He's alive, and Jesus is Lord. S. Lewis Johnson, one of my favorite preachers of all time, said this. Oh, how important it is, my friends, to be right about our Lord's death and how terrible it is to be mistaken about Christ's death, to think that he died and that he does not live. That's the greatest mistake any person could ever make, to be wrong about our Lord, to be wrong about his ministry, to be wrong about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection is the greatest error that anyone could possibly ever make, he says. And the apostle, by the grace of God, is brought to the conviction that Jesus of Nazareth is the conqueror of death. And he said to his congregation, if you have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and are mistaken about him and his life and ministry, 
you are mistaken about most, the most important thing in human life. May God bring you to a conviction that he is conqueror. He is Messiah. He is the Lord of all, and he is Lord over all. Now, the humiliation continues for Paul, doesn't it? Remember, just moments ago, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was going to the high priest. He was asking for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, in verse 6, Jesus tells him to rise Enter the city where you will be told what you are to do. Luke says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing, so they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. He rose from the ground after being laid prostrate on the earth. He was blind. Those eyes were open. He couldn't see anything. So he had to be led into Damascus. You want to talk about being brought low here. Guy was maybe on a horse. He certainly had a a lot of guys with him, but now he's being led by the hand. Come on. Come on. Just this. Watch that rock. He had been brought low. The scriptures have a lot to say about pride don't they? Specifically about how it's incompatible with true biblical faith. I love the parable Jesus told to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Very impressive. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus Christ himself said, I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Psalm 138. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 3. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Proverbs 29.23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Matthew 23.12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 1, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 1 Peter 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James quotes the same thing in the fourth chapter of his letter. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. <clears throat> There's no room for pride in the Christian church. 
Richard Baxter said, uh, excuse me, Richard Baxter <clears throat> said, the very design of the gospel is to abase us. And the work of grace is begun and carried out in humiliation. Humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creature. It's, it is a contradiction in terms, he said, to be a contradict to be a Christian and not humble. It is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not humble. Horatius Bonar agreed. What a great name. A believing man will be a humble man. He will think little and speak little about himself. Truth carries us above this pride, self-esteem, and vainglory. He will refrain from giving prominence to self in any of his proceedings. His great object will be <clears throat> to hide self, not only to forget about it himself, but to make others forget about it too. This man that is still proud or boastful or vainglorious, self-confident, has good reason to suppose that he has never yet believed. It's incompatible with the Christian faith. We're not proud. We don't boast. ask yourself this morning, am I truly humble before the Lord and before others? Do I count others as more significant than myself? Do I boast, even in my own salvation, my knowledge of the way, my knowledge of the Bible, do I boast in that? Hard to ask yourself that question, though. It's like the guy whose New Year's resolution was to be a humbler man. Uh, He claimed it would be easy because he was really, really good at it. Now, now Saul of Tarsus, he left Jerusalem a very haughty man. He was very prideful. But by the grace of God, he entered Damascus as a humbled man, a converted man. Humiliation, transformation. Humiliation, transformation. As one commentator said, Saul began the trip physically seeing, but spiritually blind. He ended being physically blind, but spiritually seeing. In chapter 22, Paul says, Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? Now it's, now it's very clear. What shall I do, master, owner? I am your humble slave. And the Lord said to me, Rise. Go into Damascus. There you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, he's saying, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Look at our verse 14, point four in your outline. It says, that, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. Pretty interesting. Verse 12 speaks of a vision inside of a vision. I thought that was interesting. But Ananias, one of three Ananias in the New Testament, he had a bit of hesitation about this conversion, right? About going to see Saul, understandably so. 
This should give us an indication just how brutal Saul of Tarsus was. Even hearing from God himself, Ananias was like, ooh, this guy? Uh, I don't know. And God says in verse 15, yeah, yeah, that guy. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So in verse 16, Luke says this is what Ananias did. He departed and entered the house where Saul was. He laid his hands on him. And this is a good illustration for us that God has the power to transform even the hardest of hearts. Even the chief antagonists, even the greatest of his enemies, which we all were at some point. I think I mentioned that kidnap family a couple times earlier, but... You know, in, the, in their most recent audio recording, they were asking for prayer. But not just for prayer for themselves. They said, quote, pray that the gang members would come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. These people recognize the grace and the power of the gospel. I don't want us to leave here without missing the obvious theme throughout this monumentally significant account, and that is that it was all sovereignly orchestrated by the king of kings himself. Just like last week in the account of the Ethiopian eunuch, I'm not sure how anyone could read uh, this Bible and ever deny the reality of divine sovereignty. It just seems so clear to me. It seems so uh, indisputable, and yet people dispute But the fact remains, God chooses who will be saved. And Paul had firsthand intimate knowledge of this truth. Like all of us, Saul would have never chosen God if God didn't first choose him. He would have never loved God unless God first loved him. That's why he would go on to emphasize the sovereignty of God and salvation over and over and over again in his letters. Spurgeon said, I I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. (laughs) And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I, I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. And the reason why it seems like we keep bringing up divine sovereignty here at Lakewood Bible Chapel so often is because the scriptures tell of divine sovereignty so often. Even here, Saul is knocked to the ground. He's spoken to by the Lord. Then he's told by the Lord what he must do. He hated Jesus. He hated Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, to the point where he wanted to put his followers in prison, men and women. He was brutal toward them. He was ravaging the body of Christ. But in his amazing grace, just his absolute amazing, abounding grace, this unmerited favor toward a people who are woefully unworthy. He says, Ananias, go to this street. Go into, this, go into this house. There you'll find this man, Saul of Tarsus. He is a chosen instrument of mine. 
I chose him from before the foundations of the earth. He's mine. He's my child. He belongs to me, to my body, and I love him, and I forgive him of his sin. And I will be with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth, but for now he will be my witness. I will place my spirit inside of him as a guarantee of his salvation, and I will use him to accomplish all my purposes. Go. I will show him how much he must suffer not for his own name, not for his own achievements or worldly stature, not suffer under the eternal torment he so rightly deserves for sinning against his creator, but as a herald of my name. I chose him. Uh, The same Paul who would go on to write, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Who said God's purpose of election continues, not because of works, but because of him who calls, proving that our salvation does not depend on the man who wills. Do you get that there? It's his words. Proving that our salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. He told the church in Thessalonica, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from, before this, uh, for, from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Galatians 1, he writes, this is Saul, converted. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But... When he who set me apart from before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus, where it all started. That's where we'll pick up next week when we go from the humiliation of Saul to the proclamation of Paul. As immediately he proclaims Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Luke closes out our section by saying, and Ananias laid his hands on him and said, brother Saul, brother Saul. I love that. He says, my brother in Christ, Lord Jesus, who appeared to to you on the road by which you came, sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Text says immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. I have no idea what that means. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. And for the majority of this book, the majority of the New Testament, we have the absolute privilege of seeing just how God used his chosen instrument all by his grace and for his glory. 
So I had echoes S. Lewis Johnson from earlier today. If you have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and are mistaken about his life and his ministry, you are mistaken about the most important thing in life. Well, it's true that God is sovereign over salvation. He's in absolute control of every aspect of it. In his divine sovereign wisdom, he has also commanded that both men and women exercise the faith required to obtain justification before him. We are called to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to come to him, to trust in him, to place our faith in him. And because we are chosen, he will give his called people the ability to do so through the strength of his spirit. So I would invite you to stop kicking against the goads. Stop buying into the lies of this world. This world will never satisfy. They're lying to you. Only Jesus can satisfy you, not only in this life, but for all of eternity. Stop kicking against the goads. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of the one who gave you life and sustained your life this very second as you're hearing my words. I would implore you to place your trust in and then revel in the truths of his glorious gospel of grace and salvation. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. I would invite those of you who have heard his word today who are under the weight of the conviction of his Holy Spirit right now to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to cry out to him for forgiveness of sins, to repent of your sin, to depend on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for reconciliation to the Father. I would invite you to walk in the way of salvation, the narrow way of salvation leading to eternal life. Amen? Amen. Let's uh, pray now as Noel and the team comes up and leads us in one last song. Oh Lord, we do thank you. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.